Hello and welcome to the Biome Podcast. My name is Graham and I am your host. Just some housekeeping before we get into the episode. We changed web host recently, so the new site should be up and running. Feel free to check it out and let us know what you think. We've put a lot of work into making the site easier to navigate and better looking. We're also looking and working to add more content to the site. So if there's anything you want added, let us know and we'll look into the possibility. The store is currently down for the moment as it's being rebuilt to match the new site. But if you want to support the Biome uh, Media Project, you can still donate or sign up for our membership at the links on the site. Also, if you think you are knowledgeable, head over to the site where you have um, the option to take one of our three quizzes. One about mammals, one about birds, and one about reptiles and amphibians. If you think you're knowledgeable, knowledgeable in any of those topics, try out our quiz and post your results. Don't forget to tag us if you do, as we love seeing the results. Head on over to the site and click activities in the top menu, and you will find the three quizzes. For now though, let's jump into the animal spotlight section. Welcome to the Animal Spotlight section. Now, as inhabitants of our awe-inspiring planet, we are fortunate enough to share our homes with a multitude of diverse species, each with its own set of unique characteristics and adaptations. Among these, the flamingo emerges as an intriguing marvel, with its stunningly vibrant pink hue, elegant one-legged stance, and complex social structure. It compels us to delve into its life, examining its remarkable history, specializations, and unique adaptations. From its striking physical attributes to its intricate behavior, the flamingo offers a vivid spectacle of adaptation, reminding us of the multitude of ways that species adapt and thrive within their habitats. More than just an object of aesthetic admiration or a pop culture icon, the flamingo is a creature that provides invaluable insight into several biological phenomena. How does a creature evolve to filter feed in salt pans, consuming a diet that would be lethal to most other animals? What are the advantages of standing on one leg, an oddity that has puzzled scientists for decades? And how does a white-feathered chick transform into an adult with brilliant pink plumage? Furthermore, the exploration of the flamingo's life is not merely an academic endeavor. It has significant implications for conservation, with many species facing threats due to habitat loss, pollution, and other human-induced factors Understanding their biology, lifestyle, and adaptations can inform and guide effective conservation strategies. Now, in this episode, we embark on an intriguing journey that spanned millions of years, exploring the evolutionary history of these fascinating birds. We'll delve into their unique physiological and behavioral adaptations that have allowed them to colonize a range of habitats from the Andean mountains to the salt pans of Africa and the Caribbean's warm coastal lagoons. We'll also shed light on the efforts being made to preserve these magnificent birds for future generations to witness and admire. 
The story of flamingos takes us back millions of years to the Eocene epoch, roughly 50 million years ago. It is during this distant era that the earliest flamingo-like birds, the palalodids, make their first appearance in the fossil records. Not true flamingos, but similar in size and probably habitats, they give us a glimpse in the evolutionary path that led to the flamingos we know today. Our journey into the past brings us face to face with a single leg bone from France, the oldest known fossil of a true flamingo, named Elornus. This humble artifact is an important signpost on the long evolutionary road that has shaped the modern flamingo. Our world is home to six species of flamingos, each with its distinct characteristics and habitats. The greater flamingo is the largest of the species and it strides elegantly through the regions in Africa, Southern Asia and Southern Europe. In contrast, the lesser flamingo, which is smaller but it boasts larger numbers, graces the Great Rift Valley in Africa. The Caribbean and the Galapagos Islands play host to the vibrant American flamingo, also known as the Caribbean flamingo and the high Andean plateaus of Peru, Chile, Bolivia, and Argentina are the realm of the Andean and James flamingos, while the Chilean flamingo finds its home in temperate South America. Flamingos have been part of human culture and mythology for centuries. Ancient Egyptians saw them as manifestations of Ra, the sun god, while Romans considered their tongues a delicacy and a status symbol. Today, these birds have a different cultural role. They're seen more as whimsical plastic orn lawn ornaments, symbols of tropical allure, particularly associated with Florida. But what are flamingos? Standing tall with picturesque elegance, flamingos captivate us with their distinctive physical traits. They're large birds, with the greater flamingo reaching up to about 1.5 meters in height, so a little over 5 feet or around 5 feet in height while the lesser flamingos, the smaller species, stand at a little over a meter. Flamingos are best known for their vivid pink or reddish pink feathers, a striking feature that actually results from their diet. Their elongated graceful necks and thin yet sturdy legs add to their unique silhouette, creating a figure that is instantly recognizable across the globe. Equally distinctive is the flamingo's beak. It's a marvel of natural engineering that separates them from many other bird species. Its downward bend, known as a negative bend, and the positioning of the upper and lower mandibles in reverse to most birds are key features that assist in filter feeding lifestyle. Their beaks house lamellae, which are a comb-like structure that enables them to filter small organisms from the water, including algae, crustaceans, and small fish. To feed a flamingo, uh, sorry, to feed, a flamingo will often stir up the bottom of the lagoon or take its feet um, with its feet to release food items into the water. It then immerses its beak, upside down of course, and uses a pumping action of the tongue to draw in water and push, out, and push it out through the sides of the beak, trapping the food particles inside. Now, despite their long legs and neck, flamingo are adept flyers. Their powerful wings propel them across the sky at speeds of up to 60 kilometers an hour. Now, their flight is a spectacle with their long necks outstretched in front and their legs trailing behind, creating an impressive linear form against the sky. 
Depending on the availability of food and suitable nesting sites, flamingos can migrate over vast distances, a testament to their endurance and adaptability. Their migrations, while not as predictable or regimented as some species, are a compelling aspect of their life history, marking the seasonal rhythms of their existence. Together, these features form a composite picture of the flamingo's specializations. The unique physical attributes, combined with their specialized feeding technique and impressive flight capabilities, underscore the flamingo's successful adaptations to its environment, illustrating the intricate connections between form, function, and survival in the animal kingdom. Let's have a look at extremophiles, just as basic extremophiles. Now, extremophiles, as the name suggests, are organisms that thrive in conditions considered extreme by human standards. These environments can include incredibly hot or cold temperatures, high salinity, high radiation, high pressure, extreme pH values, either highly acidic or highly alkaline, or areas with limited oxygen availability. Various types of microorganisms, primarily archaea and bacteria, make up large portions of known extremophiles. But some eukaryotic or um, multicellular organisms, including certain types of fungi, algae, and even animals, can also withstand harsh conditions. The study of extremophiles not only provides insight into life's adaptability on Earth, but also informs the search for potential extraterrestrial life, as these organisms demonstrate that life can persist in environments once thought inhospitable. Now, flamingos exhibit a kind of extremophile behavior, not really in their, well, in a bit in their physiology, but specifically in their diet and habitat preference. They're often found in environments where few other species can survive. Alkaline or saline lakes, lagoons or wetlands, these areas are typically home to microscopic organisms such as algae and small invertebrates, many of which are themselves extremophiles. One notable example is the lesser flamingo's predilection for feeding on spirulina, a blue-green algae that blooms in the high alkaline waters of East Africa's Rift Valley lakes. These flamingos have developed a unique feeding technique that allows them to filter these microscopic organisms from the water, transforming the harsh environment into a banquet, basically. The East African Rift Valley lakes, where many flamingos make their home, are often highly alkaline. Alkalinity is measured using the pH scale, which ranges from 0 to 14. A pH is considered neutral below 7, or uh, sorry, a pH is considered neutral at 7. Um, below 7 is acidic and above 7 is alkaline or basic. Now the Rift Valley lakes can have pH levels as high as 10 or even 12, which makes them extremely alkaline. For comparison, seawater is a pH of about 8 and pure water has a pH of 7. Common substances with pH values in the 10 to 12 range include soapy water or even bleach, which are not environments where most organisms can survive. These high alkaline levels are a result of the geological activity in the region and the evaporation processes. The Rift Valley lakes are endoric, meaning they have no outlet. Therefore, when water from these lakes evaporates, it leaves behind the minerals and the salts, increasing the concentration of these substances and thereby the alkalinity. 
Flamingos have adapted to this harsh environment with remarkable resilience. Not only can they tolerate the alkaline waters, but they also take advantage of the unique diet it provides, consisting largely of extremophile organisms like the spirulina. This blue-green algae flourishes in such conditions, providing an abundant food source that is difficult for most other creatures to exploit, giving flamingos a distinctive ecological niche. While flamingos themselves are not extremophiles in the traditional sense, their ability to thrive in such environments, their diet of extreme loving organisms and their unique behavioral and physiological adaptations makes them a fascinating study in how life can not only survive, but also flourish in what would be, or what we would consider extreme environments. Flamingos are a wonderful demonstration of the adage, you are what you eat. Their iconic pink or reddish pink plumage is a direct result of their diet, which is rich in carotenoid pigments found in the algae and the small crustaceans that they consume. These pigments are metabolized and deposited in the feathers, beak and legs of the flamingos, manifesting their vibrant colors. This phenomenon is not exclusive to flamingos by any means, but it is a powerful illustration of their unique dietary habits and their extreme uh, environments. They have salt glands that play a pivotal role in the survival of their highly saline and high or high alkaline habitats. Now salt glands are special organs found in some animals that help them regulate the salt content in their bodies, a process known as um, osmoregulation. They're especially common in marine mammals or marine animals rather, and birds that inhabit saline environments. In flamingos, these glands are located in the nasal region. When a flamingo consumes salt water or food from saline environments, the water and nutrients are absorbed into the digestive system, basically like you and I. But the excess salt would, without these specialized glands, build up to toxic levels. However, the salt glands in flamingos function to actively excrete these surplus salts. Now the salt glands secrete a concentrated saline solution, which is then expelled from the body. Often though the, or sorry, with flamingos, it's often through the nostrils. This process allows flamingos to consume salty water and food without the detrimental effects of salt accumulation in their body. It's one of the crucial adaptations that allow flamingos to live and feed in high salinity or highly alkaline environments where many other species cannot survive. This process is not energy free by any stretch of the imagination. It requires metabolic energy to pump the excess salt out against the concentration gradient. However, the trade-off is evidently worthwhile for flamingos as it enables them to exploit a food source with little competition from other species. Thus, Salt glands and osmoregulations are yet another testament to the flamingo's remarkable adaptation to its extreme environment, painting a fuller picture of how this intriguing bird thrives amidst the alkaline and saline waters it calls home. Flamingos also exhibit fascinating behavioral adaptations related to their extreme habitats. Their particular feeding technique, which they, where they stir the lake or the lagoon bottom with their feet and filter feed with their beaks, immersed upside down in the water, is a unique response to their diet of small organisms that thrive in the alkaline or saline waters. 
Their nesting habits are also specifically or specially adapted to their environment. Flamingos construct mounds of mud on which they lay a single egg. The mound obviously protects the egg from fluctuations in water level and temperature, and the parents take turns incubating the egg. Once the chick hatches, they feed it with a nutrient-rich secretion produced in the digestive tract, which is actually known as crop milk. So it basically has the same um, uh, function as mammalian milk, but this is not made through mammary glands of any sort. It's actually made within the crop. Um, flamingos are highly social birds, forming large colonies that can number in the thousands. The social structure has several advantages, obviously, including protection from predators, it's more efficient foraging and collective warmth during the cold periods. Flamingo mating rituals are also an enchanting spectacle of their social behavior. These involve group displays with intricate sequences of stretching, preening, and vocalizations, along with the synchronous performance of head flagging, which is moving the head from side to side, as well as wing salutes, where they show off their brightly colored wing feathers. These complex rituals reinforce group cohesion and are crucial in pair formation. These adaptations, from physiological to behavioral, highlight the flamingo's remarkable resilience and its specialization for thriving in an environment most other species would find inhospitable. Each adaptation speaks volumes about the way organisms can evolve to meet the challenges posed by their environment, making flamingos truly fascinating subjects to study in the realm of biology. Flamingos, due to their dependency on a very specific, uh, on very specific ecological conditions, and their position within the food chain, are considered valuable environmental indicators. Changes in flamingo populations can reflect alterations in their ecosystem, making them a bellwether for environmental health. For example, changes in water quality, including shifts in salinity or alkalinity, can impact the microscopic organisms that constitute the flamingo's diet. If these conditions become inhospitable for the algae and the small invertebrates, it would directly impact the food source for flamingos, causing a decline in their population. Similarly, human-induced factors such as water pollution or habitat destruction can also be detected through changes in flamingo populations and behavior. Now, let's look at the threats of flamingos, or the threats to flamingos, rather. Flamingos face various threats, many stemming from human activities. Habitat loss due to human encroachment, pollution, pose significant risks, and in some regions, egg collection and hunting for food or trade can also threaten flamingo populations. Moreover, because flamingos breed in large colonies and have a high degree of site fidelity, returning to the same breeding grounds year after year, they're particularly vulnerable to changes in those specific locations. Any disruptions in their breeding sites can have profound impact on their ability to successfully reproduce. Recognizing these threats, conservation efforts are in place to protect and preserve flamingo populations. Many of their habitats have been designated as protected areas, and international cooperation as well as local engagement play significant roles in the conservation strategies. Research is constantly ongoing to better understand flamingo ecology and behavior, which in turn informs conservation practices. 
Citizen science initiatives like flamingo banding and tracking projects contribute to this knowledge base and involve local communities and conservation efforts. Education and advocacy are also crucial to ensuring long-term protection for these magnificent birds. In this way, the story of the flamingo serves as a reminder to our interconnectedness in the natural world. As environmental indicators, they reflect the health of the habitat, and as subjects of conservation efforts, they demonstrate our capacity to protect and preserve biodiversity. Their continued survival and prosperity depends on our understanding and respect, as well as our care for the environment in which they, and ultimately we, live. I think that's enough for the animal spotlight section. Please join us next for in a few moments for the um, technical section of the podcast. Welcome to the technical section. In this section, we look at some theory, idea or concept within the world of zoology. And today we're going to be looking into filter feeding in the animal kingdom. In the vast theater of life, nature's actors employ a staggering array of strategies to secure their sustenance, their survival. For the hunter stalking its prey to the plant quietly photosynthesizing under the sun, every organism has its unique method to extract or produce the nourishment it requires. One such strategy, both elegant and efficient, adopted by a surprising variety of creatures, is filter feeding. The term itself paints a picture, a creature sieving its meal through from some surrounding medium, separating sustenance from the insignificant. It's an image of a humpback whale engulfing a cloud of krill, or a sponge passively sieving particles from the water, or a flamingo sifting through the salty lake bed like we've just spoken. This episode ventures into the fascinating world of filter feeding, a method used by organisms from the tiny zooplankton to the largest whales. We shall journey across the breadth of the animal kingdom, exploring how these creatures have perfected their feeding technique, each in their own unique way, shaped by millions of years of adaptation. We will delve into the mechanisms they use, their importance in the ecological tapestry, and how they reflect the health of our planet's water bodies. The aim is not merely to study the individual species, but to appreciate the interconnected roles they play and the delicate balance they maintain within their particular ecosystems. With this backdrop, let's embark on this exploration and unravel the intriguing tale of filter feeding in the animal world. So first, what is filter feeding? At the heart of filter feeding is a simple concept, extracting food particles from a surrounding medium, typically water. However, this elementary definition scarcely does justice to the exquisite complexity of the uh, mechanisms involved. Filter feeding is not just about ingestion. It's a finely tuned dance of separation, an act of discerning sustenance from the insignificant, which is water, generally. It involves straining suspended matter and food particles from the water. The filter feeders separate edible organisms like plankton, bacteria or small crustaceans from the rest. These feeding marvels are equipped with specialized structures to perform 
this uh, feat, their bodies being their very own sifters and strainers, each tailored to their specific needs and environment. The evolution of filter feeding is a testament to life's adaptability. Over countless generations, a myriad of species have converged upon this particular strategy, honed by the relentless whetstone of natural selection. Filter feeding likely emerged as a response to the abundant availability of microscopic organisms within the water. For many organisms, instead of pursuing individual prey, it became more energy efficient to filter plentiful, albeit smaller, food from the water. The factors that influence this evolutionary trajectory are as diverse as the species are themselves. For instance, the baleen whale's massive size, coupled with the energy needs to maintain such bulk, might have driven the evolution of their baleen plates to serve enormous volumes of water for nutrient-rich krill. On the other hand, passive filter feeders like oysters and mussels, anchored in place, needed a method to exploit the food resources available in the water flowing past them. Not all filter feeders evolved from the same circumstances or for the same reasons, making this feeding strategy fascinating case of convergent evolution, where different species independently adapt similar solutions to life's challenges. In essence, the story of filter feeding um, Filter feeding's evolution is a chronicle of necessity and opportunity, a tale of life's enduring ingenuity in the face of survival demands. Let's have a look at the different mechanisms of filter feeding. First up, passive filter feeding. Now, passive filter feeding is nature's minimalist approach to securing sustenance. It's a less energy intensive method employed by creatures that remain stationary or drift with the current letting the water bring the food to them. Sponges are quintessential passive filter feeders. Lacking a nervous system, digestive system, and indeed any recognizable organisms, sorry, organs, they are among the simplest multicellular organisms. However, their sp simplicity belies their ingenuity. Using tiny whip-like flagella on the cells, sponges generate a gentle current drawing water into their um, porous bodies. As water passes through the intricate canal systems, organic particles are trapped and ingested by the cells. Corals too employ passive filter feeding, albeit with a twist. They possess small tentacle fringed polyps that snatch microscopic food particles from the water. Laced with stinging cells, these tentacles immobilize their microscopic prey, reeling them into their mouths. Then we also have active filter feeders. For active filter feeders, dining is more of a proactive affair. They, active, or they actively move water through their filtering apparatus, usually by swimming or by creating a water current. This strategy allows them to gather food from a larger volume of water compared to their passive counterparts. Take the flamingo, for instance. It employs a remarkably unique method of filter feeding. It's bull when closed, forms a series of fine slits through which water is expelled when the bird's thick, muscular tongue pumps in and out. As water leaves, tiny organisms like brine shrimp and blue-green algae, spirulina that we spoke about earlier, are trapped in the lamella inside the flamingo's beak, which is ready to be swallowed. Baleen whales. 
the largest animals on earth are perhaps the most famous active filter feeders. Their feeding involves a dramatic lunge into a swarm of krill or a school of small fish. As they surge forward, their massive mouths with their massive mouths agape, obviously, water and prey rush in. The whale then closes its mouth and contracts its throat, expelling water through the baleen plates, which act like a sieve, trapping the food inside to be swallowed. In both active and passive filter feeding, the beauty lies in the sheer efficiency of the process. The energy expenditure is minimized, while intake is obviously optimized, enabling these creatures to thrive in environments as diverse as the deepest oceans and the harshest soda lakes. Let's have a look at filter feeding across different species. The very tapestry of filter feeders in the natural world provides fascinating insights into its adaptability or into the adaptability of life. Here, we delve into specific examples, exploring the diversity of structures and strategies these species employ. For example, baleen whales, which we just spoke about, include the largest animal to ever exist, the blue whale. And the humpback whale, obviously, as well, are among the most iconic filter feeders. These aquatic behemoths use a series of keratinous plates, known as baleen, which hang down from their upper jaws. These plates, edged with bristle-like fringes, act as colossal sieves. During the feeding, a baleen whale opens its enormous mouth and engulfs a large volume of water teeming with prey, usually krill or small fish, and then closes its mouth. The whale then contracts its throat muscles to squeeze out the water, while the baleen plates obviously trap the food inside. This dramatic feeding allows baleen whales to scoop up tons of food in a single gulp, sustaining their massive bodies. It's also very interesting that um, some baleen whales, while they have enormous mouths, absolutely massive mouths, their throat is basically a little more than um, the size of a fist and therefore would not be able to swallow anything larger. Now, flamingos, with their iconic pink hue and particular backwards bending knees, which are actually their ankles, um, their knees are much further up, is another intriguing example. The large downturned bull is specifically adapted for filter feeding. The bull's upper part is mobile, unusual in birds, while the lower part remains stationary. When feeding, a flamingo often submerges its head upside down in water, moving it side to side. Water, along with food particles, flows into the mouth due to the action of the tongue and leaves through the slits in the bill, leaving behind trapped food particles such as algae and a small part of invertebrates. These filter feeding methods have allowed flamingos to thrive in alkaline and hypersaline lakes, habitats that are inhospitable to most other animals. Another type of filter feeding is krill. Now, krill, you might know them as the food for whales, but they are a small shrimp-like crustacean that swarms in the Earth's cold oceans, oceans in numbers estimated to be in hundreds of trillions. They form an integral part of the marine food chain, being the primary food source for numerous sea animals, including whales, seals, and certain penguins. Krill are filter feeders 
themselves. Their primary food is phytoplankton, which are microscopic plant that float in vast numbers in the sunlit upper layers of the ocean. Krill employ a set of fine combs, known as setae, on their front legs to filter these phytoplankton from the water. They can adjust the spacing of these setae depending on the size of the phytoplankton they're filtering, showcasing an astonishing degree of flexibility in their feeding. These case studies highlight the astonishing variety of filter feeding mechanisms, such as uniquely, each one is uniquely adapted to their respective environment and lifestyles. They represent a compelling testament to the ingenious strategies that life devises to sustain itself. Filter feeders often occupy a critical position in the food chain of their respective ecosystems, showcasing the interconnectedness of life. Through their feeding, they convert microscopic organisms and organic particles, often overlooked components of the biosphere, into a form of energy that can be accessed by larger animals. In marine ecosystems, for example, filter feeders such as krill, small fish, and certain types of zooplankton form a critical link between the primary producers, which are phytoplankton, and the top predators, such as whales, seals, and even larger fish. By converting the energy stored in tiny phytoplankton and zooplankton into more substantial edible package, they essentially bulk up the energy for consumption by larger predators. Flamingos, with their appetite for algae and small invertebrates in soda lakes, fill a similar ecological role. By preying on these tiny organisms, they become a concentrated source of energy for any animal that might feed on them, linking the energy flow from the microscopic to the macroscopic world. Given their unique feeding habits, filter feeders are often particularly sensitive to changes in their environment. Any alterations in water quality, for example, or availability of phytoplanktonic um, food sources can directly affect their survival and reproductive success. Therefore, they often serve as bioindicators, which are organisms used to monitor the health of an environment or an ecosystem. For instance, for instance bivalves like mussels and oysters, which feed um, by sieving through water through their gills to extract microscopic food particles, can accumulate pollutants present in the water. Observing changes in their population size, growth rates, or reproduction can provide valuable clues about water pollution levels. Similarly, changes in the abundance or health of filter-feeding krill populations in the ocean might reflect changes in the health of the overall marine ecosystem, potentially indicating problems such as ocean acidification or warming waters. Through their role in the food chain and as bioindicators, filter feeders remind us of the delicate balance in nature and how the fate of the smallest organisms is entwined with the health of the entire biosphere. Despite the enduring resilience and adaptability demonstrated by filter feeders, they are not immune to the impacts of human-induced environmental changes. Overfishing, ocean acidification, pollution, habitat destruction are all threats that these creatures increasingly face. Microplastic pollution is a particular concern for filter feeders. 
These are tiny fragments of plastic, less than five millimeters inside, and they're a pervasive pollutant in water bodies worldwide. Filter feeders, due to their feeding mechanisms, can inadvertently digest these microplastics, which cause physical harm and potentially toxic effects. Baleen whales, krill, and even flamingos can fall prey to this unseen menace. Given the importance in ecosystems and the threats that they face, there is an increasing need for the conservation of filter feeders. Actions can range from curbing pollution, which includes plastics, to protecting critical habitats and regulating fishing. Some successful conservation efforts have already been made. For instance, the recovery of the humpback whales after the ban on commercial whaling showcases how international cooperation can help safeguard these majestic filter feeders. Similarly, the designation of protected areas and stringent regulation of activities such as shrimp farming have helped protect vital flamingo habitats. Conservation of filter feeders also requires us to take a broader view, acknowledging their crucial role in their ecosystems and therefore in our world. Efforts to protect them will not only contribute to the preservation of biodiversity, but also maintain the, ha the health of the planet's water bodies and the stability of global food webs. Science, uh, scientific research is paramount to understand the biology of filter feeders, the threats that they face, and the most effective conservation strategies. From studying the impacts of microplastics on filter feeders' mechanisms, to monitoring population trends as, um, as time goes on, as time progresses, scientists play a essential role. However, given the scale of these challenges, citizen science, where the public participates in scientific research, can make a significant contribution. Whether it's reporting sightings of filter feeders, participating in cleanup activities, or advocating for the protection of local ecosystems, every action counts. In this age of environmental uncertainty, the journey of filter feeders serves as a poignant reminder of life's tenacity and fragility. Their story underscores the importance of conserving our planet's diverse life forms, each playing their own unique part in the intricate symphony of life. The world of filter feeders is a testament to life's remarkable ability to feed nourishment in the or to find nourishment in the most unlikely of places. From the majestic baleen whales breaching the ocean surface, gulping down enormous volumes of water and krill, to the elegance of flamingos sifting microscopic food from the harsh soda lakes. Filter feeders remind us of the diversity and adaptability of life on the planet. These creatures have honed the act of filter feeding into a fine sieve, quite literally. However, their significance goes far beyond their impressive feeding strategies. They're integral players in their ecosystems, providing critical links in the food chain that allow energy to flow from the microscopic to the macroscopic world. As bioindicators, they serve as the pulse of the ecosystem, their um, health reflecting the well-being of their habitats. Yet the existence of these extraordinary creatures is threatened by human activities. Pollution, overfishing, and habitat disruption, or even destruction, are significant challenges that they, like many other creatures, confront in the um, Anthropocene. 
the age of humans. But there is room for hope. Conservation efforts that protect their habitats, regulate harmful activities, and mitigate um, the habitat destruction can ensure the survival of these fascinating creatures. Moreover, the contribution of scientific research and citizen science can play a crucial role in these efforts. Filter feeding as a strategy embodies the essence of adaptability, a combination of specialization and survival against all odds. Studying these creatures offers us profound insight into how life adapts, how ecosystems function and change, and our actions can impact the delicate balance of nature. In understanding and protecting them, we may find a way to navigate our course towards sustainable future. For as we delve into the depths of the oceans, peer into the hypersaline waters of soda lakes, or look towards the vast icy expanse of the poles, we're reminded that we share this planet with a myriad of other lives, each interconnected in the intricate web of life. Well, I think we will end this episode there. If you want more wildlife content, be sure to check out our website at thebiomepodcast.com and consider becoming a member. The majority of all profits will go towards Saving the Survivors Rhino Rescue. Feel free to check them out at savingthesurvivors.org. There will be a lot more content and community of like-minded zoology enthusiasts on there, as well as giveaways, photos, and contests, as well as expert Q&As. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well and get a free copy of our Birdwatchers log, a printable form to log all your bird sightings and easy to put in a binder. I use it myself and absolutely love it. There's even a place to attach a picture or draw one in depending on your preference. Newsletters go out about once a month and contain highlights and surprises. There's also a lot of new things on the site, so be sure to check, uh, check it out and stick around and follow us on social media. And don't forget, we love hearing from you, so please do keep in touch. For now, though, we'll be back in two weeks with episode, what is it, 14, I guess. Wow. If you want to hear the podcast before it's released to the public, sign up for that membership, and you can comment and listen while it's being recorded. Until next time, though, remember to always ask questions. It's the foundation of science, after all. <laughs>